Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Zach Meyer. I'm going to introduce myself in a second here. Uh, but I just wanted to give a shout out to you all, whether you're a leader or a student. Uh, you made it through a full week of class, of work, of extracurricular things, and you made it here. Um, that's a big deal. Uh, and also, it's kind of cool to note that before you even know everybody, you at least have that one thing in common. Uh, and also, now you've all played uh, Birdie on a Perch. Um, so that is also, I mean, I feel very close to you now. So I hope you feel close to one another, too. All right, so I just wanted to introduce uh, myself for those of you who don't know me. Um, I'm, I'm the youth pastor at New City in Cincinnati, uh, like that says up above me. Uh, also, uh, I am from Georgia, but I've lived in several places. So I've lived in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, and also before Cincinnati in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, and another fun fact about living in St. Louis is I also got to go to the same seminary uh, as Murray and Eric. Um, and I think Eric was gone by the time Murray and I got there. But me and Murray, we, we rolled deep. We were there the whole time together. He left, he got out a little bit earlier than I did, uh, which makes it sound like prison, but it wasn't. Uh, but he got out ahead of me, which was awesome. Um, so I wanted to tell you a little bit more about myself. So this is my wife, Anna, uh, and our dog, Alpine. Uh, we like to get out and hike. Um, this is back in St. Louis, uh, and you can't really tell how weird Alpine looks in this, so I think there's another one. He's, he, we love this photo because of how weird he looks, he's just really awkward. Um, but then there's also a really nice photo of him. Yeah, he's, he's a sweetheart. Uh, he's at home, we miss him, uh, but he is, he is our dog. Uh, and I want to tell you a little bit about what I like to do. Um, so I, this is Leicester City. Uh, so Leicester City is an English Premier League soccer team. Uh, over the pandemic, I got into the EPL and Leicester City became my team. Uh, and we've had a rough go of it so far uh, this year. We we're uh, in the relegation zone, recently made it up to mid-table, uh, so things are looking better. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to share is that I also like to hike. Uh, so this is, got to go with some guys, one of them's in this room, uh, to uh, Colorado over the summer, and I hiked Long's Peak, which is a 14,000 foot uh, mountain. Uh, it was very fun. And, uh, and I'm very, very happy with this. And there we are, we're all exhausted. And then I also, this is me back in civilization with friends. I also like to hang out with friends. We were uh, duck pin bowling, which is basically bowling, but the pins are connected to strings so they get reset easy. Except if you throw it really, really hard, they get tangled uh, and it's a big mess. But there are some of uh, my friends there who are also here right now. Uh, the next one, Oh, yeah, this is what I want to tell you, why I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, I love retreats, um, hooray retreats. I love them because I love the food, first of all. Um, the food is great. I don't know if you have uh, had Higher Grounds food. Uh, it's not like good food, but it's different. There's like another category where you're kind of like, ah, oh, retreat food, and it just, it's just sweet to the soul. Uh, so I love that. I love getting away. Uh, I love being out in nature. Uh, it's a little bit quieter out here. Uh, we live kind of more in like a urban light area. Uh, and so there's less noise, which is kind of fun, uh, unless you're sleeping in a room with a lot of people who snore. But hey, you know, you get what you get. Uh, and then also, I love focusing on the gospel. I love talking about it. It's one of the reasons why I decided to become a pastor. And I also just love uh, hearing about uh, my own need, learning about my own need, hearing about the needs that other ha others have and how the gospel meets that. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Um, and now I want to introduce to you 
uh, the theme for the weekend. Uh, so one of the things that I think previous speakers have done that have been really helpful is they give a theme for the weekend that then kind of helps you have a little bit of anticipation and direction for where we're going. Uh, and so I want to introduce this year's theme for our retreat, and that theme is the real world. I put quotes around it. Uh, yeah, right there. The real world, right? And we're going to talk about it. And one of the reasons why I picked this is because it felt like an easy pop culture reference, right? We love pop culture references because we can tend to know a little bit about it. Um, and uh, has anybody heard of the reality TV show, The Real World? Anybody? Show of hands. Okay, this is what I wanted. This is perfect, okay. So the reason why you haven't heard about it is because it was like one of the first reality TV shows, right? Um, and um, yeah, this is, this is how old it was. Like look at what they're wearing, it's kind of crazy. Um, so it was one of the first reality TV shows. Um, and it actually went on to shape a lot of other TV shows, whether they're reality TV shows or not, and also movies. Uh, but more importantly, it really shaped the way that people thought about their lives. Uh, so the show basically, this is the premise, in case you don't know, the show basically put several strangers uh, in a room uh, in the same house, uh, and the directors and producer are basically kind of like set things up, kind of create and... Uh, you know, manipulate situations to kind of create fun, to create drama, fights, and occasionally the romantic relationship. Uh, and so to be honest, it was, uh, it was created uh, to be an interesting show where something was always happening, right? You're always drawn into the drama of it. Uh, and what happened over time to viewers uh, is that people began to assume that this is what the real world should look like, uh, that there should be the same amount of fun, drama, fights, and romance in our lives too, right? Um, and you might think, hey, that's kind of a silly idea. Didn't they know this is a TV show? Yeah, sure, they did, right? But I think uh, that we all kind of do this, right? We all want to become like the things that entertain us and that grab our attention. A great example of this, I think, is TikTok. Um, you know, it's one of uh, the greatest arguments for this, I think, actually, because uh, you watch people do a variety of things, right? They play games, they sing, they dance, they put makeup on, they do like crazy like footwork drills with soccer balls, uh, it's nuts. But the crazier thing is, is what, it, what it's built around is it's built around collaboration, right? Because then what everybody else does is they add to it, right? Doing that same video in a different way. But maybe you're somebody who's like, well, you know, I have TikTok, but I don't make videos with TikTok, so this doesn't apply to me. Well, it also influences the way that you relate to people. It comes up in what you talk about, what you try, what you do, right? And so the truth, I think, that we see in the real world and also TikTok is that we are greatly shaped by what we watch, by what we hear, and by what we engage in. Um, even though I think we know, right, we know that the real world's a TV show, we know that TikTok uh, is, you know, just this uh, social media platform, we kind of buy into the idea that the world should be full of kind of games, singing, dancing, fancy footwork, right? Uh, or maybe some of the drama, romance, and violence, too. Um, and then we kind of believe that our world shouldn't also be that way, but that we should be like that, too, right? That we should be as skilled, as beautiful, as strong, as wise, as funny as the people that we see. And so the second reason why I chose the real world as our theme this week is because I think we often live lives, I'm going to get to this in a second, uh, that uh, we live our lives based off of a fake world, right? 
Um, and I love this quote from Yoda because it says, I'll just read it because it's kind of blurry. When you look at the dark side, careful you must be. I should do a better voice, shouldn't I? I can't. Uh, for the dark side looks back. And so the wisdom that Yoda is giving us is like, be careful what you watch because what you watch is also looking back into your soul and impacting your soul, right? So we start to believe what we watch. And so going and digging in and thinking through what is the real world actually, uh, it helps us kind of dig through some of the false stuff that we've come to believe about ourselves and about the world. Uh, and the, the false world, I think, is something uh, that we, where we tend to kind of play up certain aspects of the world and downplay other aspects. Uh, and the problem with this is that um, viewing the world in this way doesn't help us understand what to do with things like boredom. It doesn't help us understand what to do with things like suffering. It doesn't help us understand what to do with, I think, beauty. Beauty that can't be contained into like a 15-second clip, right? So these things, this fake world, this false world, doesn't really equip us to be the well-rounded humans we were created to be. So in this fake world, our hearts, they tend to kind of get shrunk down, right? And we kind of fall asleep to the real world that we've been born into and that God's made us for. And so this week, I kind of want to focus on the real world that Jesus wakes us up to. Um, and to start us on that path, I want to introduce also our theme verses uh, for the weekend uh, from the book of Colossians. Uh, and so this is, I would like you to think about it. It's like we're not going to reference this every time, but it's almost like kind of like an umbrella idea, right? What we're getting at through the conversation that we're going to be having. And this is it. It's Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God, that him is Jesus, was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, right? This is the idea that the whole world is God's and he is actually actively reconciling it and doing so through Jesus' work and through his spirit's work among us. So this weekend, this theme verse will kind of be that umbrella over that conversation as we look at what the real world is. And I kind of want to give you a little bit of a, a vision for what each session will look like. We're going to kind of be doing a different thing at each one. Um, and so to do that, I want to introduce a concept uh, for understanding God's word, uh, the, or the biblical story, um, and even kind of like our world. And it's super, super easy to remember, and that this is the biblical narrative. It's creation, fall, redemption, restoration, great fun picture if you're visually inclined. Uh, and it's important to remember that this is kind of also like a progressive way to look at the Bible. So it's kind of like looking at the start with creation and going to when Christ returns to make all things new. Uh, an easy way to kind of understand this is to think about the Lord of the Rings, right? So there's three books in the Lord of the Rings and that as you progress through them, you kind of start to understand the greater context of what's going on in Middle Earth. You need the whole process, you need to kind of gain it slowly. And so tonight, we're gonna kick things off by starting at the beginning with creation. And for this, I decided to uh, Pick a passage, not in Genesis, uh, but I'm actually going to start with Acts 17. Start with verse 24. So you can go ahead, if you have a Bible, you can turn there uh, as our scripture reader comes up, uh, Murray himself. Uh, but to set the context for this passage, Paul is talking to some of the smartest, most religious Greeks in Athens about who God is. And to do this, he ultimately decides to go back to the beginning. Acts 17, verses 24 to 28. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of things in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Thanks, Murray. Uh, so a few years ago, uh, I got to go to uh, Greece with my wife and her family. Uh, and we actually got to go to the place where this bit of scripture is uh, taking uh, place, I guess. Uh, and so you can see it in this picture. There we are. Uh, Anna and I are standing uh, on the Areopagus. Uh, where Paul is talking to the Athenians. And before I get into it, I just want to tell you some fun, crazy facts uh, about the Areopagus. Uh, so Areopagus, it's hard to say because it's Greek, uh, it, and it's actually Greek for the hill of Ares. Uh, and Ares was the Greek god of war. And you can't really see it, but over here in the distance, that's actually where the temple of the god of war still stands. And it's actually funny because like, of all the temples, it's like the one that is the least damaged, and I'm like, how did the war one not get damaged? I don't know. Uh, the second interesting fact is who here goes to Mars Hill? Yay, look at that. Okay, so, so you guys probably know that there is, uh, that Mars Hill is another term for Areopagus. You guys know that. I don't know if you guys knew that, but now you do. Um, and so basically what the Areopagus is, is this ginormous rock uh, and it actually gets really slippery, even when it's totally dry. So I can't imagine walking up there uh, when it gets wet. Um, but right over the edge of the Areopagus, so not there, but like right down there, uh, is this place called the Agora, um, which if you've ever heard, uh, does anybody know what agoraphobia is? Anybody shout it out. What? No, that's good. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, that's right, it's a fear of like open spaces where there could be lots of crowds and, and stuff like that. Uh, and that's exactly what the Agora is, is it's basically a wide open place where a bunch of crowds would gather, right? They would uh, come there um, and they uh, basically would talk about all the important political and business conversations of the day and they'd make some really big decisions there. Uh, one of the weirdest parts, uh, this is also right down there, uh, I remember walking uh, with Anna, and we walked by this like ring of stones that was just like on the ground over here, and uh, a tour guide just happens to go like, oh yes, the, the, the ring of stones, that's where democracy was invented. And you're like, right there? And he's like, yeah, right there. And so it's like crazy, you start to realize like how young uh, our world is compared to the ancient Greek world. Uh, and so finally, the last fun fact about the Areopagus, uh, it was also the place where they would historically make big decisions on uh, criminals, uh, whether criminals should live or if they should die because of what they've done. And so the Areopagus, for all intents and purposes, was a place uh, where topics of life and death were discussed. Um, and so this is no different for Paul, right, when he comes here and he's talking to the philosophers in Acts 17. So you see, previous to our verses we are looking at today, we find that Paul had actually been walking all around Athens all day, and he found images of tons of gods and idols everywhere. And he's rightly concerned for the Athenians because God had been working for the past thousands of years through Israel to reveal himself to the world, 
right? And the Athenians had not really been able to see that very clearly. And then all of a sudden, Jesus kind of comes as the fullest revelation of who God is and what he's doing on earth. And so Paul is kind of coming to the Athenians and saying, look, I see how religious you are. I see how inclined you are to wanting to have spiritual knowledge. And there is very good news that I have to tell you. So Paul is walking around Athens, right? He's uh, noticing and uh, just seeing how oriented the Athenians are towards like the concepts of deity, and he's noticing that they're missing something vital, right? Knowledge of the one true God. Because of this, Paul goes uh, to the Areopagus, right? The place that we were just talking about, uh, where these kinds of life and death topics were discussed, and he begins to talk about who God is. And his goal is ultimately to waken the Athenians to that real world, right? The world that God had made. And Paul goes on to do that by kind of looking at these three points that we're also going to look at tonight. It's uh, where you are, whose you are, and what you are. So where you are, whose you are, and what you are. So I'm going to pray for us really quick, and then we're going to dive into our first point. Father, thank you uh, for helping us get here safely. Um, thank you for helping get through us, helping get us through a crazy week of school, of work, and all the other responsibilities that we have. Uh, and I'm just so thankful for an opportunity to um, all come together to learn about your word, to learn about you, uh, to ultimately learn more about ourselves through that, and to just enjoy a whole lot of games, fun, laughter. Uh, and growth and relationship with one another. And so we pray, Father, that you would use uh, your word uh, to do that and that your spirit would be active among us this weekend. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so a fun uh, connecting point that I mentioned earlier is that Eric and Marie and I all went to the same uh, seminary in St. Louis called Covenant Seminary. And while we were there, uh, we had uh, one professor whose name was Jay Scalar. Jay is a, is a great man. He'll make you call him Jay, too. Uh, and he would come into class every time. Every time he'd do this, he'd come into class and he'd say, Shalom, class. Like, shout it at us, right? Uh, and Shalom, by the way, just basically means like, hey, the fullness of the peace and wholeness that God brings be to you, right? It's a, it's a Hebrew way of saying that. So he would sh shout that at us. He'd say, Shalom, class. Uh, and he would expect us and also tell us to say the same back to him, to say, Shalom, Jay, right? Uh, and then uh, he'd give us another kind of uh, fill-in-the-blank opportunity uh, where he uh, would say, uh, context is. He would shout out, context is, and just kind of leave us a little dot, 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 right? And then he, again, told us and uh, instructed us to repeat back to him, uh, is king, right? And so coming together, that would be context is king. And believe it or not, that was just the beginning of our little back and forth we'd have every class. Uh, typically, uh, it ended with us going through the whole Hebrew alphabet, uh, which we won't do tonight. Um, but uh, his message, I think, was pretty simple, right? Is like context matters big time. Like it's the king of mattering, right? It gives us a greater sense of who we are, where we are, what we're doing. And you can't really understand anything without understanding a context, right, of a person, place, or thing. So, for example, imagine that you go to a restaurant and you're sitting down and you see this man come in, he sits down and uh, he orders three pizzas. And you're like, wow, this guy, man, he's going to eat a lot, of, a lot of pizza here. Is he going through something? Like, do we need to talk? Like, I don't know what's happening. And then all of a sudden, right, his wife and two kids come in the door, right? You just learned a little bit about context right there. 
because originally we didn't have the information that he had a wife or a family and we're thinking this guy's gonna throw down a lot of pizza, right? But when they walk in the door, we have greater context to what's going on. And so we need that information. So context really is king if we want to understand the world. And that is what Paul is moved to help the Athenians understand. Uh, earlier in the passage, when Paul uh, saw just how many idols and gods the Athenians were worshiping, he rightly understood just how religious they were. They were serious. This is what they spent their time, energy, and life on. And so he sees that in their seeking to know um, the world, they're seeking spiritual truth about deity. They want to know. So Paul wanted to share this information with them to help them understand the spiritual reality that they were in so they could actually operate in the world as they were meant to, right? He's helping them gain that context. So Paul ultimately begins to help them understand the world that they live in, uh, and he does so kind of by saying things like in verse 24, that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Um, so in other words, Paul is saying, you worship a god for just about everything. You worship uh, the grain god for when you're hungry. You worship the wine god when you want to feel good. You worship the god of romance when you want to fall in love. And Paul wants to awaken them to the reality that they're running all over the place, spending their lives performing for gods that not, not only don't exist, but even if they did, wouldn't have the authority to pull things off that they're wanting them to pull off because there is just one god over all things. And out of love and compassion, Paul wants to draw their attention to this, right? And so going one step further, Paul also says this in verse 25, that God is not served in hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life, breath, and everything else. Paul is opening the Athenians' eyes to the reality that they had been trying to approach God's um, on the idea of service, right? That if they uh, made the right sacrifices, said the right word, did the right rituals, then God would reciprocate something back to them, right? It was a kind of a transactional idea. I do this, and then the God gives me things back, right? So um, if they made sacrifices to God, that God would then provide, you know, the food, the romance, the wine, or whatever else they were seeking after. Um, and so then he comes and he says, um, so something I think that is totally revolutionary for them that for us might not be that revolutionary. But he says that the one God isn't dependent on your giving. He is actually self-sufficient because he existed before you. And further than that, this God gives. This is a significant part of who this God is. He is a giver. It is fundamental to who he is. He gives life he gives all good things, all those good things you've been chasing after that haven't been really delivering you the depths of the desire that you have for them. He actually delivers something better. So in other words, Paul is saying this world you live in and you have been lived, this world that you live in and the way that you've been living in it is all wrong. And I want you to see the truth. So uh, we're not Athenians. Uh, we don't live in Greece. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I don't remember the last time I made a sacrifice to uh, God for fresh kicks or a new record, right? Uh, but there is something about this um, that we need to hear and apply to our lives because we too often believe and act as if there are many gods that we chase after. And um, we chase after so many things. And we too don't know um, or often forget the context that we live in too. So we live, you live in a world where people 
take really good things like clothes, music, romance, sexuality, food, friendship, family, and even church, and they make them ultimate things. Yes, each of those things are ultimately really good, right? But they can go off the rails when we bind the idea that these things really provide for our deepest needs, for our meaning, for our protection, and even our joy, right? That's what ultimate things are. Ultimate things are things that we start believing we can't live without or we can't be fulfilled without. So the brands we're always chasing, the friendships that are never really secure enough as we'd hope, and the, rom- and the romance that can really only provide just so much, it always leads us to a place of disappointment, right? Even though those are good things, we still end up disappointed because we're using them poorly. We give so much of ourselves and sacrifice so much to chase after things that we think will make us fit in, uh, the friends who we think will make us feel like we've kind of arrived socially, and the romance that will kind of make us feel alive. And the gospel comes in, and it meets us in this pursuit, and says, wait, hold on just a second. These things are good, even better than you probably even realize, but they aren't meant to give you what you're asking of them. And that God has already said that he wants to give you the things that you really long for. So remember this. God is the one whom Paul says that he himself gives everyone life, breath, and everything else. And this, I think, leads to our next point about whose you are. Um, So I love movies. Um, and uh, watch, it's probably one of my favorite things to do. I didn't add that at the beginning because I knew I'd tell you here. Um, and uh, I, one of my favorite things is like plot twists, right, that happen. Uh, but especially when there's like a relational twist, right, where you, you kind of learn something more than you were able to believe at first, right? Uh, so it, it, a relational twist typically goes like this. You meet a character uh, during a point uh, in a plot line, and this character assumes certain things about themselves. We'll get to practical examples in a second, but here's this. And then eventually, some new information kind of comes to light, and they realize that part of their identity was actually totally different than they ever knew. And this is really shocking for them. So there's uh, plenty of famous examples out there. Uh, Probably the most classic one is, of course, uh, Star Wars between Luke and Vader, right? Uh, This is really old, so if uh, you don't know about it, I'm sorry, I'm going to blow it for you big time here. Uh, But for the first bit of the original series, right, the audience and Luke are all walking around thinking that Vader had killed Luke's father. Until they're in this moment, and Vader drops the bomb. He says, I am your father. And Luke screams, if the first time you see it, you probably scream. It's, it's a big twist, right? Uh, and that's kind of a negative example, right? Uh, it got worse for, for Luke when he realized that. He didn't really like that. Uh, a positive example, though, you could think about Harry Potter. So uh, Harry, he grows up thinking that his parents were killed in a car crash. Uh, and then one day, big old Hagrid just kind of bursts through the door, right? And he shows up and he informs Harry uh, who his parents actually were how they actually died, and what that means for him. He learns about the magical world, right, and who he is in that world, that he is the chosen one, right? It's a big plot twist, a relational twist. So similarly, when we know who we belong to, right, like Harry knew what he belonged to, uh, we learn a little bit more about ourselves and the world that we lived in, or that we do live in, to whom we belong and to whom we are in relationship with. 
And this concept is clearly kind of on Paul's mind as he speaks with the Athenians. Paul even uh, goes so far to quote one of the Athenians' poets, right? He's kind of saying like, hey, your culture has good things. It's recognizing good stuff, and I want to acknowledge that. So he points to verse 28 and says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So here Paul is, is saying, one of your poets is actually so right on. You are one who is in relationship with the one who created you. He gave you life, and there's an aspect of who, or of how you live that actually reflects the God who made you. So quoting another uh, poet earlier, he affirms that the Greeks are not too far off, right? Uh, that humans really do live, move, and have their being in a way that echoes their maker. Uh, and so here kind of Paul zooms into something that is almost kind of uh, obvious, uh, but he really zooms in and he kind of says, like, not only did God make all things, but he made you, right? He's getting very specific. He's kind of coming in and making an intimate statement, right? The God of the universe has a relationship with you. So more than being a creator, too, we also find uh, that God is a lover, right? He's not just a giver. He's also a lover. Uh, that he doesn't engage with his creation at a distance or, cold, or with coldness, uh, but he actually is quite intimate and near. And Paul ultimately kind of points that out in verse 26. And I, and I love this language because it's kind of, there's, there's this, I don't know, my like romantic level to it, right? Where he says this, he said, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. Oh, wait, this isn't the romantic part. Give me a second, it gets there. Uh, but he says, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history uh, and the boundaries of their lands. So he's kind of, you know, introducing this idea. He's like, he knows you. He knows how everybody's moved. He's intimately involved in all of that. And then this is where the romance comes in. In verse 27, he says, God did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's actually not that far from one of us. So I know some of you are going to roll your eyes at this, but I feel like that kind of sounds like a little bit like a Taylor Swift love song, Right? Uh, just to prove my point, here you go, right? And now I'm pacing back and forth, wishing you were at my door. I'd open up, you would say, hey. I know that's not how she sings it. Uh, or, try this, come back and tell me why. I'm feeling like I've missed you all this time, and meet me there tonight. And let me know that it's not all in my mind. I just want to know you better, know you better, know you better. Now, I forgot that last part. And then, here we go. I bet, this time of night, you're still up. I bet you're tired from a long, hard week. I bet you're sitting in your chair by the window, looking out at the city, and I bet sometimes you worry about me. So back to Paul, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far off from any one of us. You know, this isn't romantic in kind of like a couple sense. This is kind of like bigger romance. This is like cosmic romance. This is like the most intimate statement, right? This is romance, a romantic language, an intimate language. And Paul says this to remind us that God has a very intimate knowledge and care for us, right? And that he wants to share all of who he is with us. If we could just kind of like overcome the distance that's between us, overcome the barrier between us. And so the last part that I love um, that Paul points back to in verse 24 is that the Lord of heaven does not live in temples built by human hands. 
So here Paul is emphasizing that God isn't just a creator, right? He's, he's again, he's that lover. Uh, but he's also, going back to the beginning when we're talking about, he's also a giver. He's one who goes above and beyond so that you and I can not only know him, but we can actually be in that intimate relationship with him, right? That Jesus actually comes and he takes on the sins of the world, our sins, so that he can remove that barrier so that that intimacy can actually occur, right? And that's what he's wanting to highlight. He's wanting the Athenians to see the love of God poured out for them. So the takeaway of this um, is that we can um, only know really who we are uh, when we know whose we are, right? Who we belong to, who we have a natural relationship with. This is especially important for us who live in kind of modern Western society where we hear all sorts of different things about who God is. These are just a couple of examples. So we hear things like all gods or paths or religions lead to the same place. Or God is a God of peace, and he doesn't judge. Or God wants you to be happy. Or God doesn't care what you do as long as you're a good person. So the problem with these statements is that they actually take a partial truth about who God is, and they expand them and oversimplify the character of who God is, and who he is, and what he wants, and who we are, right? So for example, I'm just going to run back through those. So when people say that all gods or paths or religions lead to the same place, Right? They say that because it can be really uncomfortable to think that our beliefs could actually be wrong and that we actually need Jesus to rescue us from our false beliefs too. And this statement kind of minimizes sin and misses the character of Jesus that he's actually one who dies for our mistakes because he really deeply loves us. Or when people say that God is a God of peace and he doesn't judge, they're really taking a part of God's graciousness and loving Uh, and his lovingness, um, and making him one-dimensional, right? Kind of dismissing the idea that if God really loves people, he's going to confront our sin, our brokenness, the things that are destroying us, right? That's real love. Or when people say that God just really wants you to be happy, they kind of tend to uh, emphasize the joy of relationship with God and downplay the reality that any commitment, regardless of what it is, any relationship, especially with God, though, entails some level of change, some level of commitment, and some level of really difficult sacrifice. And finally, when people say, God doesn't care what you do as long as you're a good person, they kind of downplay the reality of sin, that it's not just uh, an external action or thing that happens out here, but it's actually an internal matter of the heart, a brokenness that's inside us and that is going into every bit of who we are as a human, right? And it also introduces the idea that everything's okay if you just kind of do a little bit more good than you do bad. So who it is that, that people say God is really matters, right? It changes the context. And so when we're trying to understand who God is, that's why his word is so important, because it kind of fleshes out the full character of God. That's why in many and most, I think, of all your churches, right, you're constantly preaching through all the books of the Bible, right? You don't just, like, pick one. You say, oh, we want to know the whole knowledge of who God is. We want to see it all. We need to know who he is. And and I think that's helpful for us because all of us, no matter if we're Christians or not, uh, we all have to answer big questions like this. What's the meaning of life? Is there a God? And if so, what's he like? How should I spend my life uh, interacting with others and being with others? These are questions that, like, everybody has to answer and we're all kind of on an even ground with. Um, And the reality is you have millions of different people telling you how to answer that question, right? 
You got loads of opportunities, loads of examples that you could pull in. So I think what your job is, what my job is, is to decide, well, who has the authority to answer those questions, right? And the reason why these are big questions is that I think because they're all identity questions. They're all core questions. They help you answer kind of on a cosmic level the question, who am I? And that question, I think, leads us to kind of our next point, which is what you are, or maybe who you are, if you like that better. Uh, so something uh, that I also saw in Greece uh, was um, a number of statues, uh, a lot of statues of kings, emperors, philosophers, and just rich people who wanted to build statues of themselves. Uh, and they were uh, an absurd amount of these. Like everywhere you went, they had a different museum for a different amount of statues, and it was, it was overwhelming. Uh, and it was interesting to note kind of why people in antiquity would build these statues. They were kind of a representation of who they were to the world. They're kind of saying, like, here I am, here's how influential I am, here's how far my rule goes. So if my statue's in your area, you know who's boss, right? Uh, and so there is tons of statues all over the place, demonstrating uh, people's importance, uh, their presence in a place, and also kind of commanding the worship and respect of other people. Uh, so one day in particular, I remember walking around this uh, kind of archaeological site. We were, it makes it sound a lot cooler than it was, but it wasn't really, it was just kind of this thing on the side. And I walked by uh, this building, and there were um, just loads and loads of statues on the ground, a broken piles of statues. Um, and I remember feeling really astounded that they were just there, because they were literally like outside in the ground, exposed to the sun, the rain, like anything was just falling on them, right? Um, and these things that were once really beautiful things, right, they took so much creativity to make, and they also took so much financing too, right? Statues be expensive. Um, but now, here they are, like on the ground dead. And this was, I think, a really kind of humbling experience, right? Uh, because you kind of saw the elite people of their day down in the dust, broken and in pieces, decaying. They had sought to kind of solidify who they were in stone so they could stand for ages, and yet here they were in the ground. Uh, and that's really humbling, right? Because if a really, really rich person who can afford all that stuff ends up down there, guess who else does? Me, right? And you, right? We're not as rich as those guys. Uh, they made an image of themselves to put out into the world and to let them know Kind of like, here I am, right? Um, my rule extends this far. My influence impacts this place. And these people where this image of myself stands are mine. And in the end, their image is actually in the dust. And it was crazy. And so when we look at Paul's words and acts, we see him kind of acknowledging a similar truth. Uh, but more in a kind of subtle way, right? He's showing the Athenians the reality behind the gods that they are worshiping. He's telling them that the gods they worship are, in, in effect, kind of a projection of the things that they're chasing, right? The things they think that will ultimately satisfy them. So all their gods are a projection of food, of pleasure, of status, of conquest, right? They're ultimately just worshiping their desire, and these images of your desire will just end up in the dust. Paul is telling them, you're living in a false world bought into the idea that you are uh, one whose meaning and life is based on these kind of good things. 
Paul is saying, you think your primary identity is found in being servants of these gods and becoming like them and spreading your image, your power, and your influence in similar ways. That's wrong. And Paul's concerned for the Athenians, right? And his concern is that they could give their whole lives, their days, their family life, their energy, their loves, and that they would sacrifice all of that for these gods that would ultimately end up in the dust. Now, if they do this, that they too would end up in the dust. A cosmic dust of kind of separation from God, right? And so Paul, in a really winsome way, again, he really cares about them. He's acknowledging, hey, they're onto something here, and I want to encourage them to kind of go further. So in a winsome way and sincerely, he's calling them to really remember who they are. So in the same way, Paul's words reach out to us who are sitting or kind of standing in this room right now. Uh, they are communicating a concern that we don't give our lives to false gods that will end up in the dust, right? Giving us words of life that will prevent us from trying to be like those false gods that we just described. And now we, we look a little bit different than the Athenians, right? We, uh, we aren't worshiping physical idols, and we aren't building images of ourselves to demonstrate our power, our influence, or our reputation, except on Instagram. Um, and yet... We are just like the Athenians, right? We worship popularity, we worship wealth, and we worship comfort, and we worship it with our lives. We spend ourselves chasing it. We spend our time, our energy, and our money to kind of try and obtain these things and become ultimately kind of just like the Athenians, right? Because we also think that we're gonna find meaning, security, and kind of the fullness of life in these things. So that's what it really means to make false gods. It's not just building statues. It's kind of pursuing those things as if they can deliver something that they were never meant to, right? To uh, worship things with our resources, to attach our hopes for them, to provide us with that value, with that purpose, with that significance. And Paul's trying to confront that in our hearts, right? He's trying to say, hey, I'm concerned for you, man. I care about you. But more than that, he's also directing us where we should go, Right? Where do we go with that longing? Where do we go with that depth of desire for life at its fullest? So he directs us back to the one who actually made us, right? And that's the whole point. It's pointing us back to our creator. And here is the secret of the gospel for you, for I, the Athenians, that we miss repeatedly. Here it is. You don't have to do anything to receive value, purpose, or significance. You don't have to earn meaning. You don't have to earn security and you don't have to earn the fullness of life. We don't have to do these things because, wait for it, God gave you these, right? These are the things that we get by being made in his image. In the same way that kind of the kings, the rich, the rulers of antiquity would kind of set up their images throughout their kingdom, so God has made his image throughout his kingdom, you and I, right? We are representatives of the king, representatives of his rule, and our relationship with him reflects that. That is where we find our meaning and our security and glory. So that when we kind of look at ourselves or others, uh, we aren't just seeing kind of like a a bundle of cells. Uh, We're also not seeing kind of characters and some mythical story or an idea in our head. Um, We're not just seeing an ordinary person, right? C.S. Lewis, I'm sure you've heard this before, has this famous quote where he says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, statues, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as their life, or as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals, those who live forever, 
whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Each of us, Christian or non-Christian in the room, we walk around with this kind of immortal glory bursting through us regardless of if we want it or not. And so one of the challenges I have for you is as we walk around this weekend, look for it. Look for it in yourself. Look for it in the random stranger you're going to become friends with. Like, look around. It's here. And we miss it often. Um, and at this point, I think it would be very fair, and I think probably several of you are saying, wait, 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 Zach. You say, these are all the things that I get, right? I get fullness of life. I get meaning. I get value. I get all that, right? Well, how come I don't feel it, right? How come I don't realize it? How come it's not just bursting out of me every second and I'm just like the most chipper person to ever walk around? Where is that immortal glory? I don't feel it. I don't experience it. People don't treat me like I have that. And I think that's a great question. And I do, do want to say that that's a question that's going to kind of tee us up for our next talk. Uh, but I do want to kind of leave you with this idea before then. Um, so I'm going back to Lord of the Rings. Okay, so in Peter Jackson's adaptation of the Lord of the Rings, so again, this is the movie, it's not the books, they're different, they're different. Uh, and in the adaptation that he does, uh, he has a version of Aragorn, who again is kind of the rightful king of Gondor. And Aragorn, uh, and also if you don't know what I'm talking about, just bear with me, vibe, we'll get through it. Um, uh, but you know, he's the rightful king of Gondor, and Aragorn in the movie is kind of troubled. Even though he's the rightful king of Gondor, he's kind of hesitant to kind of take up this identity, this nobility. Uh, he, throughout the whole time, he's kind of afraid of it. He misunderstands it. He doubts himself. And because of this, he kind of wanders throughout Middle-earth, right? He goes on kind of, uh, if, you're, if you're deep into gaming, uh, side quests, right? He's just kind of building out little different areas that he's going into. Um, Something had ultimately kind of come in between the way of how he viewed himself that really prevented him from seeing his identity rightly, right? So he was, there's no arguing it, he was the son of a king. And yet, he treated himself as if he wasn't. He designed a world and operated in it as if he was not who he actually was. And this is also true for you and I, right? We are also sons and daughters of the king. We have nobility in our veins. We are made up of royalty. We are made in God's image. And something's corrupted our view of ourselves, the view of our world, and also the view that we have of God. And we really, really need help. So despite our wonderings at times, uh, it doesn't change who we were made to be. We are made to be sons and daughters of the king. And our king will do anything to remind us of that, including come and give his life to save us into that family. So next talk, we're going to be kind of looking at what prevents us, again, kind of from kind of feeling and experiencing that immortal glory. Uh, and then that will kind of set us up for how the king actually comes and rescues us back to that status that we have always had, the status of sons and daughters of the king. So I'm going to pray for us, and I think we have one more song, so our worship team can come on back up. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you um, that you seek us out, uh, that you're not uh, uncaring, uh, that you actually enjoyed making us, you enjoy watching us, you enjoy speaking to us. Uh, and so I pray, Father, that you would help remind us uh, in the depths of our desires, our longing for fullness, our longing for value, our longing for connection and purpose, that you would meet us there and that we would see your face 
and that you would tell us once again that we are your sons and your daughters and that there would be nothing between us that you would not overcome so that we would experience that. And we pray that you'd be with us as we uh, finish up with worship and then go to run and play and probably scream into the night. In Jesus' name, amen.